This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Jill. Today's episode is an interview I did with our good friend of the podcast, Marie Benedict. We heart Marie. We love her. Um, For those who have not, well, I talked a little bit about her new book, Her Hidden Genius, in our January Book Picks episode. But for those who are not familiar with Marie's books, she tends to find women um, in history who perhaps do not get their due currently in, you know, 2022. Um... And with Her Hidden Genius, it is about Rosalind Franklin, who is a scientist and instrumental in the discovery of the double helix in DNA, but because of the patriarchy, uh, (laughs) um, was not, you know, part of the group that won the Nobel Prize, comprised of, um, you know, Watson and Crick. And so Marie takes a fictional look. She has extensive research, but it's, you know... It's it's a uh, fictional, it's historical fiction. Um, a fun fact, though, I'm just saying. <laughs> um, one of the 2022 PBN book challenge, reading challenge things, is to read both a historical fiction novel and a biography about the same person. So, just saying. If you need some options, this could be one, because there are books about Rosalind Franklin out there. Um... If you want to get a hold of the podcast, our website is professionalbooknerds.com. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. And you can always email professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com. So I think that's everything that I have for you today on this lovely Monday. Um, So I hope you enjoy this episode of the Professional Book Nerds podcast and our interview with Marie Benedict. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. You know, Jill, that this is one of my favorite moments, my favorite visits, my favorite conversations with every new book. I get to see you guys usually in person, usually in person, still, still in the ether, but that's okay because I love to chat with you and I'm just so happy to be here with you today. So can you start by giving listeners a brief introduction to her hidden genius? Her Hidden Genius is the story of a brilliant British scientist um, by the name of Rosalind Franklin, who um, was really the discoverer of the structure of DNA through her hard work, uh, years of labor and research. Um, Her data was, and her images were utilized without her knowledge or permission um, by two gentlemen in particular who are much better known than Rosalind, uh, James Watson and Francis Crick, um, who then utilized that information to build a model and publish a paper um, that ultimately won them the Nobel Prize. Um, 
you know, to the credit of Watson and Crick, who were, you know, famous in textbooks, um, they did extrapolate from her information and, and have some of their own findings, but their, their conclusions, their model in particular, which is really the crux of their paper, um, was really built upon the, the many years of labor that Rosalind Franklin and Ryan Gosling, her, um, her research assistant, did in her expertise in this scientific technique called X-ray crystallography. Um, and those gentlemen won the Nobel Prize along with one of Rosalind's colleagues, Morris Wilkins, the one who gave those gentlemen access to her information. And um, she did not receive that, that sort of recognition. So it's, it's my fictional Rosalind Franklin uh, based very much upon the very real Rosalind Franklin. Yeah. When we talk about women in STEM, this feels like a prime example of why we put so much focus on making sure women are recognized for their contributions, you know, because there was that big award. There <laughs> was, that she never got. I mean, it, it's exactly it, Jill. It's, I look at her, her life as, and I mean, her legacy is so vast and extensive. And we, we're even only now kind of reaping the benefits and, and understanding better what her legacy is. But in, but in some ways, her life is also a cautionary tale, right? Um, about what happens when women are not recognized for their contributions, when in fact, their contributions are in some cases intentionally suppressed or marginalized um, and the aftermath of that and the ramifications that has or has had on the way women are perceived in the profession until recently when she's kind of been utilized as almost like um, a scientific icon in her, yeah. in her own way. So, you know, I feel like her story has started to come full circle. Um, but again, even now, like, and not to digress too much, but her research that she did after DNA in RNA and viruses is actually foundational for our the, the modern day scientists understanding of COVID and vaccines and the creation yeah. of vaccines. So like the reverberations of her life are so, um, so enormous. And we really don't even have a full sense of, of how vast it is. Yeah. And I know, you know, you're known for writing books where you kind of find, I don't want to say obscure because it's not necessarily obscure, but you kind of find women in history who maybe haven't been given their due and, and write about them. This feels different though, because it's not just about being forgotten to time, but her work was stolen by the men she worked with, which yes, that's yeah. like that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it, you know, this is a case. It's so egregious what happened and it's, it's a case of not just, yeah, as you said, a woman making a contribution like Hedy Lamar with um, her invention, which ultimately throughout the years became Wi-Fi. Um, in her case, in her lifetime, yeah. um, that that sort of event that led to her obscurity occurred. Um, one of the things that I tried to tackle in the story was her knowledge of it. We don't really know what she did or didn't understand about about how her information was being used and how they were accessing it and um, whether she understood that her, her data had actually been taken yeah, yeah. Um, and, and how she coped with it during her lifetime, given the limitations that were placed upon women at that time. Yeah. And, you know, again, this is where I love writing fiction because we don't really know the extent of her knowledge, but kind of given what I came to learn about 
the real Rosalind and my fictional Rosalind and the events that transpired afterwards, what we can say for certain is that she rose above it. She did not allow that, um, that defeat, that marginalization, that frustration to define her in the years after DNA, after the, the, the revelations about DNA, she went on to an entirely new area of research and she was so proficient and good at that, yeah. that, um, you know, I don't want to give too many spoilers, but she was unable to complete that research. We won't right. say why, um, that, um, her colleague that she worked with Aaron Klug won the Nobel prize for it several years later. So, you know, the speculation is that if she had been able to complete all of her research and if she had been given credit where credit was due, she might've won not one, but two Nobel prizes. Yeah, that was, that was actually going to be one of my questions, which, as you said, she was unable to complete her research for reasons yeah. you will have to find out if you, you really have to um, but yeah, do you, do you think there may have been like history may have been different about that if, if she had been able to complete it and get the credit? Yeah, I do. Because I think in, you know, I kind of look at her life in three parts, right? There's the beginning of her life, sort of those formative years, family, her first, her education, her first job, which was transformative for other reasons, which you'll have to read the book for. And then her period of time at King's College, which is where her DNA research happened. Mm -hmm. And then the years after where she did her RNA and virus research. Um, And I think that environment was supportive, was different. Um, I think the the men with whom she worked, because they were all men. I mean, she was one of very few women in the field. Um, They were celebratory of her and her accomplishments. They recognized her for not just her hidden genius, but also her unbelievable work ethic. I mean, her work ethic was, was mind boggling. Yeah. Um, And I think had she been able to complete it, there wouldn't have been those barriers in the way that were present during the DNA years that kind of in effect robbed her of her ability to achieve recognition. Right. Right. So I I do think, I think had she been able to complete it, I think we would know her, her name. Yeah. I think we would know her name. Yeah. I liked the way the book was kind of set up in, in that you had it like the, the years in Paris and then like London was kind of split up. And it was interesting reading about how, her experiences were different in her just between the Paris years and like the London years and how she was treated. That was, that was really fascinating to read about and sort of, you know, the same time, but the perception of women in STEM was, was very different. It was. And, you know, I'm not, as you know, all too well from having talked to me about the other Einstein and the only woman in the room, both of which are about women scientists. I'm not a scientist, right? I just, <laughs> I just learn enough to write the book and then it flies out of my head. But I would be very curious to know if those differences remained over yeah. the decades. So what she had found, um, as you just hinted at, was in Paris, she found a very welcoming environment for women scientists. You know, she worked in a lab, the Labo, where there were many women scientists, many women researchers. She got that job through her friendship 
with Adrienne Weil, who was, um, she was a French Jew who was a refugee and, and taught at Cambridge while, um, while Rosalind was there. They formed this very close friendship. And she's the one who kind of introduced her to the powers that be in France. And, you know, here was a woman who was unlike any other woman she'd ever met, you know, a woman who was a successful female scientist respected in her field. And, you know, she really kind of mentored um, Rosalind. So, and then, so uh, Rosalind had this incredible experience. And I think she was reluctant to leave because she knew based on her own experiences that the English scientific world wasn't quite as welcoming to women. Um, and you know, from what I'm read, from what I've read, I mean, that was certainly Rosalind's experience. That, that was pretty true Yeah. Um, at the time. I'd be very curious to know if the, those differentiations existed today, like yeah. is France more, I don't know that. And that's yeah. something I probably should know, <laughs> but that cultural difference, um, for her was really, it was, it was life-changing. Right. Yeah. And, and sh- having tasted that sort of, you know, sense of, um, of acceptance and being celebrated regardless of her gender, she sought it out again after King's college. And I do think that the lab where she ended up at Birkbeck college was one that, that had that, you know, not probably, maybe not across the board, but certainly in the world that she herself created. So um, the beautiful thing about Rosalind and the unique thing about Rosalind for that time period was um, she suffered no fools. Yeah. She was, exactly herself, which was strong and single-minded and undeterred um, and unwilling to compromise. And that was not a look that was really popular for women at the time. Right. Yeah. That's actually um, a good lead into my next question. You know, so (laughs) funny how we work like that. Oh, no. So, you know, like with so many of of the women you've written about, um, what we have previously known about Rosalind, a lot of it comes through the lens of the men she worked with, in particular, John Watson and his book, Double Helix, which did not necessarily paint her (laughs) in a a flattering light. Uh, (laughs) But I know like her best friend also wrote a book. And so there's these two. So can you maybe just talk? I'm sure those came up in your research. Um, Oh, yeah. yeah, can you talk a little bit kind of about those two perspectives that we've we've known about her from, you know, like Watson and then and then her friend? Yeah, I mean it's it, I'm so glad you raised that because they are those two books are so important in the formation of of Rosalind Franklin the scientific icon. Um and they're also very formative in in my book and how I researched it and how um the research that I did which comes from her friend um, and also I think are very telling and very important for us to think about. I almost want to write like articles about those two books. Mm-hmm. Because I think the irony is that I think Rosalind might have been lost to time f- forever, Yeah. but for James Watson's book, Double Helix. So as probably we all know by now, even if you aren't a scientist, Watson and Crick and Wilkins, but he's lesser known. Um, won the Nobel Prize for the discovery of the structure of DNA. Um, in the years after that, I mean, in those, t- the, Watson and Crick in particular became very famous, not just in the scientific community. Um, and Watson wrote a book, um, an autobiography of the st- of that discovery process. Now, what's what was really unusual about it? It was it, it's it's a good read, right? Which is very unusual yeah. for a scientific book. Um, 
Harvard, where he was working at the time, refused to publish it um, because in large part of its depiction of Rosalind Franklin, there was uh, a lot of uh, uproar um, behind the scenes. Of course, I don't know that this ever came to light until more recently from her family, even from Crick, who was not on great terms with Watson by this point. Um, And eventually he found another publisher. It became a bestseller. And that narrative, that male Watson narrative is what held sway for a long time. And even into today, because it was such a well-read book. Um, What's interesting about that book is it plays to every single, in terms of its depiction of Rosalind, it, it plays to every single stereotype of a female scientist. She's portrayed as unattractive. I mean, like, why does that matter? Like, exactly, exactly. Why is that even raised? But it's raised a lot. Um, unattractive, uh, surly, hard to work with the sort of dark smudge on the white pristine lab. And if only she would have given over her research for God's sake. And you know, what's interesting. So this is this terrible portrayal and um, sort of uh, characterization of of Rosalind that existed for a long time. Um, There's something that happened in reaction to that, which which is her friend, which I'll talk about in a second. But what's interesting in the context of the the historical research in my book is that, you know, that book came out after the event that transpired that allowed, that um, caused Rosalind to not complete her research, right? right? Um, But she and Watson, actually in the years, in the immediate years after the discovery of DNA, before he became famous and won the Nobel prize, he, he he was very kind to her. He reached out to her. He tried to help her. And I think this is like my pop psychology view guilt. I think he knew what he had done was wrong. And I think that um, he was trying to assuage that guilt by helping her in some way. But then as the years progressed and he became famous and he knew that there was some backlash percolating about Rosalind, I think he painted the picture of Rosalind that he did maybe out of guilt, but maybe as his own consciously or otherwise his own subconscious trying to justify what occurred. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, I don't know. I don't know. These are all hypotheses and this is why I write fiction. Right. And some of those theories kind of work their way into the book, but she did not she in the years after the discovery of dna she kind of she didn't love watson while that was all happening he was really unpleasant to her but they kind of forged a bond and she actually became really good friends with crick and his wife which is kind of crazy to think about mm-hmm. so it begs the question what she knew and what she yeah. didn't know and i do address that in the book but what what's also happened after that biography came out and it was so popular is one of her very good friends, Anne Sayre, who is in the book, um, and was the wife of a fellow x-ray crystallographer who was friendly with Rosalind. And these two women became friends. Uh, Anne was um, American. She was a writer. Um, and she and her husband had um, had a really close friendship, especially Anne with, um, with Rosalind. And Anne was so enraged upon reading James Watson's autobiography, primarily because of his depiction of Rosalind, that she took it upon herself to research every detail of what happened to debunk 
his story. And, and she wrote a, a, a biography herself of Rosalind and the discovery of, of DNA. And that book is really my inspiration, especially because I was fortunate enough that Anne Sayre, um, all the research she did, interviews with everyone who, everybody who was involved, like anybody, um, she was very close with the family, tons of letters with the family, interviews with family members, uh, re- data and research pretty much from everybody who was alive during that time period, um, including James Watson um, and Francis Crick and Morris Wilkins. Um, she deposited all that research at the library of the American Society for Microbiology. And during COVID, when I could not go there myself, one of their librarians was fabulous and copied all that information for me. And so basically I had at my fingertips, the kind of data I would, and research information I would never be able to have. Yeah. I mean, her book was, was wonderful enough, but this stuff, cause a lot of this stuff didn't work its way into the book. Yeah. Um, and so I really hope that in my fictional way, I've continued what Anne Sayre started all those years ago, which was really in a nonfiction way, writing Rosalind Franklin back into history. And, you know, she was confined by the limitations of fiction, nonfiction, and I can go places that she can't. Um, And I understand better than she did um, and did what uh, what Rosalind's legacy really is. But it's it's so ironic to me that because of what James Watson did in painting this horrible picture of Rosalind Franklin, in many ways, that's why we know her today, because Anne Sayre's book um, created a spark of interest in Rosalind in, in the interest of the way women scientists are portrayed in, you know, the whole, I, the whole narrative around um, white male gaze, you know, all of this stuff, she really sparked that. And that lit the flame that kept Rosalind Franklin kind of alive for all these years. That's the kind of friend you want to have. Who's like, oh, yeah, you do. right. They'd be like, you know what? I'm going to do like a whole rebuttal book about <laughs> exactly. And you know, what's fabulous is that she then went on to become a lawyer, which I feel like this experience of like, of a rebuttal of, of Rosalind Franklin's life was really like the precursor to that. It's yeah. like, Oh, you're going to go there. I'm going to go over here and you're going to say this about her. And this is how you made this discovery. Well, I'm going to prove otherwise. And, right. and she, you know, she, she really did. I mean, it's a powerful book and it really deserves, I think it did fine. It's, it's never been sort of the classic tone that, yeah. um, that Watson's book was, but it, gosh, it really did what it wanted to do in the world. Um, so you actually did again, you've sort of like set me up great for my next question. So in, in your research, this is a, this is a two-parter, um, again, First, was there anything you learned in your research that really surprised you or was particularly notable that you wanted to share? And then, you know, what were some of the things that did not make it into the book that you think, you know, you have an opportunity to share those now? Hmm. Surprise. There was so much about Rosalind that surprised me. Um, you know, even though I knew James Watson's um, depiction of her was way off the mark, and that Anne Sayers was closer. There were still so many aspects to her personality that, that really made her come alive. That surprised me. Um, one was like, she was, uh, she was like a world explorer and hiker. Um, and you know, she pl- played as hard as she worked 
And that was a huge part of her personality that, and, and really being a really good friend and family member. Like she was the most thoughtful, even though she could have like those blinders on and be so engrossed in her work. She never forgot about the other people in her life. She was a truly kind person and thoughtful person, even if she could sometimes be a very blunt person, you know, and, and query how blunt she really was. Or was it just the time period in which she lived that yeah. her bluntness yeah. was, was so notable? I mean, she might've just been as plain speaking as you and I, who maybe, you know, be, be <laughs> blunt. I'm not sure. Certainly for her time, we would have been, but she might've been softer, you know, who yeah. knows? So those things really surprised me. I think she's also very much depicted as sort of this um, spinsterish, you know, and, and she had without giving away too much, she had lots of love interests. Um, and, and those two very much played a role in the arc of her life. Right. If those had not been in the picture, she might've stayed in France. If those had, if other things hadn't happened in her life, maybe she would have, um, you know, she would have, um, formed a long-term attachment. She started out her life with this belief that, if you could not, um, if you wanted to be a scientist, you couldn't also be a wife or a mother, like, because in her world, there were so few examples of that. Um, certainly her mentor, Adrian Weil was one and Marie Curie, who was, uh, who taught Adrian Weil was another one, but she knew that those were very few and far between. And who knows how that might have evolved over time. Um, I think one of the things that surprised me, and it was really that it was just the ironic time period in which I wrote the book um, and prompted it in some ways was the, the work that she did after DNA. We think yeah. of her as like a one, you know, a one hit wonder. And that is not the case at all. She had some of the most fruitful, important research happen after that um, in DNA and RNA and viruses. And it is amazing how important that work is still today and the, today. the way that legacy lived on. And, and it was really those sorts of things that prompted me further into writing about her and, and having that big, that sort of aspect of it. I think things I didn't include, oh my gosh. Um, uh, you know, some of the romance stuff yeah. that I chose to put in, I had to fictionalize because a lot of it is speculation and rumor. And, um, and I, I took it to another level because I think it, it helped explain some choices that Rosalind made. Um, certainly I could have gone a little further in some of those areas and I could have gone a little further in her family dynamic. Um, there are part of the sort of legend of Rosalind is that her family never wanted her to become a scientist. And, and that is not true. I don't think um, or at least it's not true in my, for my fictional Rosalind, yeah. her, her family, supported education really above all else, but they wanted her also to have the things that they wanted her to be close by. They wanted her to be involved in the sort of life that, that they thought had a lot of merit. Um, you know, the, the world of uh, philanthropy being more tied into her religion, her family was Jewish and she was an atheist, um, or agnostic at least. And so while she respected it, she didn't adhere to it. And that was very hard for her family. So, you know, those, some of that sort of stuff, I chose not to go down because I think I hinted at it enough without going down the the pathway. 
And some of that, you know, there's a lot of rumors about what happened between her and Watson and Crick and Wilkins. Um, and I didn't put in a, some of that, you know, I really picked and chose the sorts of things I chose to represent the friction, you know, Morris Wilkins, he hated her, her colleague Morris, but he hated Rosalind. And I think some of that may have just have been a, a natural friction between the two as personalities. But I think a lot of it came from the fact that uh, uh, JT Randall, who was the head of the unit that they worked in, he basically took uh, DNA away from Wilkins because he wasn't having a lot of success with it and gave it to Rosalind without telling him, uh, without telling Wilkins. And it set, it set their whole relationship up for failure. Um, and there were some very unpleasant um, interactions, altercations with him and some other people in the lab. And I picked and chose, you know, yeah. those, I, the reader doesn't want to read a thousand examples of it, <laughs> but here's something really ironic. And I just have to flag it because I feel like you'll appreciate it. Um, I don't often read reviews of the books that I, I write. Um, yeah. not that I disregard them or think they're not important. It's just, you know, that's my vision and, you know, I, I, I may skim them, but there was one review that was very negative of the book and its primary complaint was that they felt like they were being hammered over the head with the misogynism that, um, that Rosalind experienced. I see your face. The listeners won't, but I do. And that's why I raise it to you. And I, I, I never, and, and all the years I've been writing books have ever had the desire to reply or respond to review. I mean, if yeah. you, I understand people have differing views, but I read that and I felt like Rosalind, <laughs> I'm like, are, are you kidding me? That was too much for you mm-hmm. living, living the world through her experiences was too much. I didn't even put in everything I could. And I'm sorry if that misogynism made you uncomfortable. Welcome to the world. Certainly the world that she existed in. Yeah. So, um, you know, I just, I I really couldn't believe that response. It may be unpleasant and maybe it's not the right book for you to read. Right. And and people could read a description of it and say, "I, I need something soft and happy right now. Power to you. Right. But to say that, that the book is flawed because you had to experience the misogynism along with Rosalind Franklin uh, is missing the point of the book. Yeah. 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 And missing a lot of the point of all of your books. I feel like, like that's sort of, yeah, no, it's, it's actually that, that comment makes me think about um, Mallory O'Mara's book, the lady from the black lagoon about um, the woman mm-hmm. who it's a um, it's, part biography and, and part sort of memoir of, of Mallory researching the, the woman who oh. um, actually created the creature from the Black Lagoon, like the, the makeup artist behind it. Oh. And her legacy as the creator was just lost because the men she worked with in Hollywood discredited her as the, the creator of the, of the creature of the Black Lagoon. And there are, you know, the book's been out for a while. It's been, um, gotten like horror filmmakers who you know like Mallory's gotten a lot of respect for sort of bringing Millicent Patrick's story to life but there are people like readers mostly male who feel like she made stuff up and that it like that Millicent really didn't do this work like it's that same <laughs> and like that's what I feel like like that review makes me think mm-hmm. of that of people being like no but see 
John Watson told us this. And so that's what we're going to believe. And <laughs> exactly. And we're going to believe that. <laughs> Right. I mean, and again, I'm not going to take it to task, but that's the only time I have felt. Yeah. What is it about this? You don't get like, how could I tell her that the suggestion was I should tell her story without that or with less of it. Okay. That's not how that works. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what else to say. That's not right. Right. So anyway, Uh, I digress on that one. Well, um, so, you know, actually I, I was thinking like you're talking about the virus work and then like, you know, Hedy Lamar with the Wi-Fi and how it's, it's so fascinating. Like this, this, the past two years in particular, you know, these two women whose work definitely sort of transcended them and, and what they did have in the case of virus, you know, work and Wi-Fi have become so important to our current <laughs> way of living. <laughs> Who would have thunk it, right? Oh gosh. <laughs> Just that, that is, that is, it's, that's a really, I had not put those two. I mean, obviously Rosalind, but you're right. Like, where would we be without Wi-Fi and vaccines and vaccines? Right. I mean, and that, that, what you just said is why I do what yeah. I do is so we yeah. can see and recognize the women responsible for so much of of where we are, how far we've come. One of the the beautiful things I do, I do have to say in defense of celebration of women scientists is this year, there've been a lot, there've been so many women scientists responsible for the vaccines. Kizmikia Corbett, um, Caroline, I can't pronounce her last, Catalan. Um, and there's been some, some beautiful pieces in Newsweek and Time and People even, um, where they kind of profile the women behind the vaccine. And gosh, how that, that, I mean, that really just gives me such hope um, that these women are being recognized and celebrated for the work that they've done. And hopefully that, you know, a situation like Rosalind's wouldn't happen again. I mean, I, I, I I know that that's not the case. I know that it's still happening out there, but um, it does give me, excuse me, hope for the future. Um, And I think knowing that we have already, women have already done all this and have been responsible for all this allows people to recognize and celebrate that women are doing it today, right? Yeah. If it's already been done, obviously it could continue to be done. Yeah. But I haven't really thought about the fact that we're literally standing on the shoulders of Rosalind and Hetty. We are, we are. We are. Um, can you tell us what you're working on now? Yes, I have um, a book coming out next January called The Mitford Affair. And it's the story, for those of you who may or may not be familiar with the Mitford sisters, they were six. Oh, yes, continue. I'm sorry. Yes, continue. Yeah, I <laughs> uh, six incredible sisters, aristocratic sort of it girls of their day in the 1920s and 30s um, in um, England. Um, I focus in on three of the sisters. Nancy Mitford, who became famous um, later as a novelist, uh, had written during this time period, and two two other sisters. Um, It is the story of uh, what can happen when politics divides a family. Mm -hmm. And um, two of the sisters during this pivotal time in the lead up to World War II 
Two of the sisters become fascists. One is married to the British um, head of the British fascism group. And the other sister becomes um, the close companion of Hitler. And these two sisters are working to um, institute fascism across Europe. They are very much wrapped up in the sway of personality, the cult of personality, Hitler in particular. Um, Both sisters are very close with him. And uh, the other sister, our observer, Nancy Mitford, um, is faced with a choice Um, as their family splinters over um, fascism Mm -hmm. and Hitler and what's going to happen to their own country. She has the opportunity to um, unveil her sister's actions um, when they seem to cross over into treason and espionage so in some ways it's a political thriller in other ways it's a spy novel yeah and in many ways it's a book like many of my others um which is sort of looking at um the legacy of one woman who we may not understand what her legacy is and how um how the political dynamics of their day really led to that decision uh, well, the idea of the cult of personality fascinates me. So I'm very excited to have you back already to talk about that <laughs> next year. But <laughs> until then, um, what do you hope readers take away from her hidden genius? Oh, gosh, I hope like with all my books that they see this incredible world changing um, historical w- woman. They see her life and legacy reverberating all around us today. I really do. And I hope that they can celebrate the role that she's played. And in gosh, not only all the advances we've had in genetics, right. That was just literally mm-hmm. everything. Um, but also in um, the vac- understanding COVID and the vaccines that we have today, she's played a role in that today. And that maybe she can operate also as sort of a cautionary tale to never, ever underestimate the brilliance of women. Love it. Marie, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode on overdrive.com and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen Podcasts, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Jill Grunenwald and presented by Overdrive. To learn more, visit professionalbooknerds.com. Hello, everyone. My name is Matt Neglia, and I am the host of the Next Best Picture podcast, part of the Film Entertainment Awards website, nextbestpicture.com. On our show, we explore all year long what is possibly going to win Best Picture at the Oscars. We do this by conducting interviews with people within the film industry, holding weekly reviews of the latest theatrical releases, and on our main show, where we dive into various different topics, answer your fan questions, and also do our best to explore Oscar history's past in hopes that it will tell us something new for this upcoming award season race. We hope that you will join us on all the various podcasting networks. We look forward to seeing you over at nextbestpicture.com.